Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hello, everybody. Today, Alan and I want to talk about Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, the parable of the vineyard and the laborers. I'm going to start by asking Alan a couple questions about his experience in the Greek, but I think the biggest question is, what is this parable about? Well, Jesus says that this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven doesn't refer to some otherworldly place, but rather it's Matthew's preferred way of designating the kingdom of God. And so that's the main theme of Jesus' message is the kingdom of God is at hand. Along the lines of the reign of God in the Hebrew Bible, the kingdom of God basically encompasses all that God is doing to redeem this world. So where the kingdom of God is, in Matthew especially, there... Uh, the righteousness of God is fulfilled. Now, I think this is, a very, this is a key concept in Matthew because the righteousness of God is something that you find cropping up several times in Matthew's gospel. And um, it's not so much a characteristic of who God is as we might think of it is. It's more of a definition of what God does. And I like to use the... It really is... It comes from a cognate that could be translated justice. It's the justice of God in practice. It's the peace that comes from God's justice that gives everyone an equal share at the table. So let me ask, is God's justice, is that the same as our justice, or should it be the same? Our justice should be the same as God's justice, I think. I would say. I I, I don't know. I mean, um, um, we have a very, very different concept of justice, I think. We have a concept of justice that is about crime and punishment. And justice in in the Hebrew prophets or or in in Jesus is more about mercy in action. It's more about um, uh, basically the shalom, the peace that that all people are meant to have, the well-being that God intends for everyone, and that it's equal shares. So you know, when I'm reading when I read this this I I I'm I'm offended almost when as one of the workers who's worked all day and then. I don't get more money. And I think most people, most contemporary hearers hear it that way. Um, so then it makes, it makes you wonder, well, why, what is, why is Matthew presenting this? I, would it have been heard that same way? In the... Well, that's a good point. I, I think, you know, it's interesting when we read the, the uh, parables of Jesus, it's funny how we tend to identify with certain characters in them. Um, you know, we don't identify with the older brother and the prodigal son, but we do identify with the guys who've been working all day long in this parable. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, I think, I think we've heard this parable so many times that we know, the, we know the punchline, so to speak. And so we know to expect that, oh, you know, this is all about God's grace, and this is about, you know, the fact that, that, that God gives equal shares to everyone. 
but uh, you know in in a sense i mean i think what jesus was doing was taking what was sort of the assumed um posture of you know you really kind of have to earn your righteousness you really kind of have to earn your way into god's good graces and turning that on its head and and basically saying you know the i think the point of this parable is that we're not really supposed to identify with the people who worked all day long we're supposed to we're supposed to see ourselves all as 11th hour workers so to speak and that we're all receiving something from god that we don't don't deserve oh yes that's very very interesting um and a very interesting take on it. I, I'm wondering. I, I'm wondering with with this, as I said, because it Matthew's the only one who incorporates this. So is this is this because of a certain message he's trying to get across to the readers? Um, is this uh, is this because he's making some commentary um, towards the towards the people in um, in in the time they'll be reading it in, in Matthew's time. Uh, I, I think um, I think the way I would say it is is um, in Matthew's gospel you get a feeling for a sense of conflict with the Jewish synagogue and with the Jewish religious establishment, a much more edgy conflict I think than in the other gospels, um, and it comes out in ways uh, in various ways. Um, I I think you know it's interesting that that. Um, you know, the, the verse before this parable is, you know, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And this parable ends with the conclusion, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And, you know, we tend to think, we tend to think of that spiritually or theologically or, or religiously, but in a sense, in, in that day and time, because of this idea that, that you really kind of... M- you you got your place in God's realm, so to speak, through your merits. Uh, there was very much a hierarchy, almost a class system, in the Jewish religious experience of that day. And uh, uh, one of the things Jesus was doing was sort of dismantling that completely. Uh, you know, by this this idea that the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, in their concept, if the higher you climb the ladder of merit. The, the higher status you have in the kingdom of heaven, you know. And Jesus is saying, no, sorry, it doesn't work that way, folks. Um, so he's really, he's really addressing what I think is, would have been the religious uh, hierarchy, the religious class system, so to speak, that was prevalent in that day. And therefore, that sense of when they heard it, this is different. And I think, I think that explains really that kingdom of God that's turned up on its upside down. When we think of the kingdom and we think of hierarchy built into these very structures of, of how we live and society, and this is another example of turning the kingdom up on its upside down. That, that this is this is a different space. This is a, different a lot of theologians will speak of it as the great reversal. And so the idea, I mean, the idea is one that's that's commonly understood is that you know. Um, we have no claim to God's grace and love, but we also don't have to do anything to earn it. You know, we can't do anything to earn it, but we also don't have to do anything to earn it. And that means that, you know, in, in, in Matthew's gospel, it's the tax collectors and the prostitutes who are getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of those who would have been seen as very high up on the religious hierarchy in, the, in that class system. Right, right. And that's, of course, that's one of the big issues of, you know, 
of, of t all time and we're talking about interpreting these things is, you know, this idea of that I can earn my way or in what way do I earn my way. And when I was researching some of this, it occurred to me that some people are even interpreting this um, as, well, as long as I have faith, and almost taking faith itself as something that they do. Mm -hmm. And I think when you really look at it in its purity and why it offends us so much is it's not what we do. It's not, a, it's not about our actions, including even our own claim to faith claim and faith that this sure. is something God does and God's free to do it in any way God wants to do it. So um, right. Right. there's a sense of that uh, in it. Anyway, um, this has been interpreted so many ways. And um, are, there, are there spaces that, that really we shouldn't go with the text? For example, you know, one of the interpretations I was reading was that the coins are sacramental somehow. And it seems to me that goes way too far in in what the intention was, and I guess in how do we how do we determine what the true intention is of, of this parable? Well, you're talking about how we read parables, and so the classic example, as you mentioned, is Augustine uh, allegorized each of the details of the prodigal son, uh, uh, not the prodigal son, the parable of the Good Samaritan, so much so that like the coins represent the sacraments. Um, I think um, most um, New Testament scholars these days would say, you know, you read a parable as a story. Now, we, we would recognize that there are multiple levels of meaning in parables. So at one level, for example, most of us read this story and we get the idea that the, the, the workers at the end who get paid, that's a good thing. You know, we, we might secretly identify with the with the workers who worked all day, but the workers at the end getting getting their wages is a good thing. One of the things we have to understand is that in that context, 80% of the population were reduced to the level of day laborers or tenant farmers. And so for these guys standing around in the, in the marketplace, if they don't work to make the coin that they need to take to the market on their way home after work to buy the food to feed their family that night, their family doesn't eat. And so, um, you know, we can, we can recognize, hey, this is a good thing. You know, these, these guys get to go home and feed their family this night. Um, at another level, I think Jesus, you know, there, there's, there's some ways in which the parables in the latter part of Matthew's gospel, Jesus always says the kingdom of heaven is like. But it's kind of, I, I think Jesus is being ironical here. And it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to catch because we are used, not used to reading the Bible in an ironical way. But um, I think Jesus is being ironical here because in some ways the kingdom of God is like this, and in other ways it's not. And one of the ways it's not is that Jesus, is, some of these parables, they sort of throw up in the face of the Jewish religious leaders the fact that while they prided themselves on their strict adherence to the Torah of Moses, they had departed from the standards of justice outlined in it. Um, you may recall that um, in, in, in the law, uh, the, the division of the land was such that every family, every group got a piece of land to be able to make a living on. And there was the provision that if the land was sold or, or it, was, it was somehow, big, if the family somehow became indebted, every 50 years, the land was to revert to their original ownership. The idea is no one can ever be permanently impoverished. No family can ever be permanently impoverished. And, you know, we, we, we see that, 
you know, the, the society in which the Judaism of that day flourished was one in which that was totally ignored because you have, you have all kinds of landowners. Some of them were the religious leaders themselves mm-hmm. who have vast tracts of land. And, you know, the, fact, the very fact that this one man owns enough land to put every day laborer in the village to work is a significant sort of almost a slap in the face of the Jewish religious hierarchy and, 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 a, and pointing out that they had strayed very far from God's intentions for um, providing for everyone. So it's interesting. If we try to attach um, I, I people to the individual characters on here, who, who is the, land, uh, the, the, the landowner? Who is the one doing hiring? Right. I mean, we, <laughs> we almost tend to think about the landowner as God because God is generous to those of us who don't deserve his grace. But if you think about it, that doesn't quite work because the kingdom of heaven doesn't really work this way in which, you know, one person is, is, is hoarding all of the resources. The kingdom of heaven works in a way in which all people thrive together equally. And, and mm-hmm. there, there are images of that in the Hebrew prophets that, mm-hmm. that, that illustrate that. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jesus is really holding, that Im- holding up this image of, you know, you say that you are so devoted to God and to, and, to, and to the law of Moses, but, you know, here's a way in which you really haven't lived up to that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, this is going to provide actually a really interesting segue of how we got to reading it the way we do read it, which is a lot of how the Reformers have brought it to us. So we'll come back. All right. <laughs> Okay, we're back, and um, I'm going to take a turn in uh, asking Christy some questions now. So, Christy, first of all, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how did the Reformers make use of this parable in their theology? Right. This is a parable used basically to explain the justification uh, by faith alone, which in the... We think of in terms of, of faith as something, we talked a little bit about this before, as something that we, that we do. I think that's become a common idea. But faith, uh, justification, justification by faith alone with the Reformers is also tied up with grace alone, that this is something God does. And this, for the Reformers, really emphasizes the power of God to save whomever God wants to save, um, and that they don't have to do anything to get there. And that's how they use it over and over and over. And that seems very obvious to them. So I guess to them, the landowner would definitely be identified with God. God. They don't question that at all. So I think this is interesting based on our our previous conversation is the reformers, the landowner is God. Absolutely. Um, And they don't really make a lot of, take a lot of space figuring out exactly who the workers are. Um, they don't associate them with, with Jews and Gentiles or even disciples um, uh, and, and those who come later. It really is, um, it really is just, just anybody um, who, who, who might be, um, who, who might, God might touch, who God might bring into the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the reformers... You, I guess they use this as one of their probably texts to, de- to defend the sola doctrines that they were 
really promoting as the essence of the faith. So, you know, faith alone, grace alone. Um, right, right. And how then did that affect the way that they read their own perspective into the parable, would you say? Well, I think one of the important pieces is, um, let's go back a little bit with the solos, because what happens when you're talking about th- uh, theologians from this era is that we tend to go back and try to understand them in simple terms. So we go back and look, oh, Luther said, you know, faith alone, grace alone. Um, but we have made those into much simpler concepts than they did. This is a much... Um, um, this is much deeper, and it, it really reflects the broader history of the church. So they're reading other people as they are, as they are making these points. But I think the, the big thing for them both in, in reading this is that it's the entirety of, of the narrative. In fact, in so commentaries by Calvin, which I think are really interesting, Calvin will take apart piece by piece everything, but when he, when, he, when he looks at this parable, it's in one giant piece that he looks at it. He doesn't pull it into pieces. So you don't have the allegorical interpretation that Augustine gave? No, not at all. Not at all. But on the other hand with Augustine is this, this concept of, of grace alone that comes through Augustine. So it's an interesting space um, that they, they come with it with some theological presuppositions, but on the other hand, um, they're trying to look at how the scripture tells them that. So it's this, it's, it's not this kind of blank slate that you might get with a modernist coming at it. They, they have underlying assumptions they have about a theological, theological agenda, agenda yeah. there. Yeah, absolutely. And so that affects the way they read the parable, I'm sure. I, I would, I think it does. I think it does. Um, now, you know, when I was discussing the idea that, that, that these parables in this part of Matthew's gospel are ironical. Is there any sense among the reformers of reading scripture or parables like this with any kind of irony? I did not see any indication of irony. I mean, it's pretty much is don't try to read anything into it. Try to take the scripture as it is. Now, but Calvin is a a rhetorician, so he's he's also aware of the use of rhetoric. in the in 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 the writing in the Bible, so he's he's not taking things literally, and he's not taking things out of context either. I mean, he's not trying to to advocate that this is the way we should run our our businesses at home, but rather what God's kingdom is, and so he recognizes it as um, he he recognizes it. I guess. I guess you could say recognize it as allegory for the kingdom of heaven or what it should look like. But so it's it's a it's a maybe it's a restrained allegory is maybe how I would say it. Um, I talked a bit about social justice as the essence of the kingdom of God and and how Jesus especially addresses the whole idea that that. Um, that justice wasn't realized in the, Jew, Jew, the Jewish context of his day. Is there any kind of concept of that social justice among the reformers? No, not at all. And I think what um, I think what happens here is that I think we tend to look at these reformers as being as being pretty forward-thinking folks, and in some ways they were, but 
we have to remember they're still not modern folks in a modern sense. They, they aren't in, they're, they're pre-enlightenment folks. The concept of equality of all humankind is not in their understanding of the world. So we're talking about a, a, a structured hierarchies within their, their world. We're talking about nobility and peasants. We're talking about um, kings and and. and we're talking about a time when that's just part of social structure is set up and expected to be set up. There's no sense of injustice that a peasant is a peasant and a, and a noble is a noble. So with that in mind, there's really no construct for the kinds of social injustices that, that we talked about, that Jesus likely was pointing forth and that we can understand today in our world um, but this was not part of Calvin and Luther's world. So they didn't, there was it's just not there. I, I don't think they were capable of seeing that. I wonder if the fact that they gave the parables like this a theological reading based on their concept of grace and didn't recognize the social justice has an impact on us in our context. I would think so. Um, absolutely. And everyone, and it's, what's interesting is everyone is, is potentially... Um, in the kingdom of God, right? We don't know who the elect are, if you will. Um, but um, it, it's not based on, on a, a merit system at all, you know? And so they're really trying to emphasize that. But I think, I think we read another space into it then of, of the quality of all people. And I, I, I guess that, that there's a sense of that if you are in the kingdom of God, that then you are, are still... You were still doing. You were you were working in response to that. You're working in response to that. So the first people in, for example, here, they are, they're already in the kingdom of God and they're doing the work for it and they are rewarded for it. Those who come later, however, you can't question who God brings into the in there, and they and they too have done, have done work in response to God's grace. So, so that leads me to another question, a whole line, another, another line of questioning is, is the idea, you know, there are some people who say that from the time of Constantine that um, the church sort of assumed it was the kingdom of God, and even to some extent that the state was the kingdom of God, because if it was a Christian state, you know, then, and uh, with a Christian church, then it was the kingdom of God. It sounds like the reformers assumed that that the the system of nobles and peasantry and and the system of uh, of the society of that day was just that was just part of the kingdom of God. Well, yes and no. I think they would have looked at the August Augustinian city of God. You know, where you have got the the holy realm and then you have the human realm. The human realm is still God's kind of ordering of society the way it is, but God's world, God's kingdom is is different so there, there's like those two separate branches and they very much had caught on to that that's part of their humanist background so uh, so to what extent does August, augustinian theology color the 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 way in which the reformers read scripture that's an interesting question i've been trying to do some reading on that um it seems to be i mean again especially in re- reference to this the augustinian concept of of grace um over to, totally overrides their their understanding, but yet that that grace is infused with this this grace that God gives to them, um, which is different than the again our kind of more modern construct. We want we want to shave down to a yes and no answer that that faith it's faith alone 
that separates itself off from grace. So in Augustinian world of grace would have come with doing, actually doing works. And they said, no, not so much that's the case, but that this faith alone is, is the God's grace that comes through it. So it's a little, it's, okay. it's an interesting, uh, it's, it, I would say they might... So they take parts of Augustine, I guess. Yeah, it's more of an evolutionary concept. So they're asking questions. Maybe a better way to put it is they're asking questions that Augustine did not ask. Um, uh, And one might come back and say, well, they completely split from that. And and I would say, no, they've they've moved through it. They've they've worked on theology beyond that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now, you know, one of the things I talked about was, you know, with Jesus' concept of the first will be last and the last will be first, that he was, he was turning the religious hierarchy of his day on its head. Obviously, I mean, we all know that the Reformers were responding to a religious hierarchy of their own. How did that affect maybe the way in which they understood this concept of the first being last and the last being first? Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I... I, I some of the, the rhetoric against the Roman Catholic Church was so harsh, I'm not sure that they would have put them always even in the same space. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't, even, they weren't even last or first at uh, all. They didn't even come in um, anywhere. <laughs> I, I, in, in particular, the, the papacy, right? The, the, they just felt that they had, were really, were fallen, were fallen, were, were, were Satan themselves. Um, and you see a lot of rhetoric wow. to that point. Oh, it's, it's pretty foul. <laughs> But, but um, they're not even anywhere on the spectrum. The, the, no, the papists are not on the spectrum. Now, people that would be in that are 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 are, are worthy of of they haven't fallen completely away. So so people that maybe are in a Roman Catholic state under that they're 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 not victims of this as much. The more but by the 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 church coming down on them, but not that they themselves are, are not in this potential elect group, if you will. So, but so, the, so the Catholic, uh, the, the papists and others, they're so, so far reprobate that they don't even yes. to be first or last or that's, anything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That, that is pretty intense. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> you know, Alan, I probably should make some comments on that in, in terms of the, the modern era, because of course we have seen a lot of, of coming back towards trying to find positions that the Roman Catholics would agree with the Protestants sure. on. And so there's been a lot of healing since then, but sure. the 16th century was harsh. And while we're putting it in terms of theology with our theologians, it also had such great social um, and economic implications for society that they just wasn't, they weren't in a, after a point at, where they could reconcile at that point. So, Well, and, you know, it sort of calls to mind, you know, a thought that, that I had about the text, uh, about the Scripture text. You know, oftentimes um, in our day we can, some, some people read texts like this as anti-Semitic. And it's a bit of an anachronism because um, the, you know, the Jewish Christian church, they were Jewish. And so how, how does a Jewish person be anti-Semitic, right? So, uh, and, and in fact, they were the ones who were being oppressed by the powers that be. And so this is the language of the, an oppressed minority, really, in that time. And unfortunately, in the history of the church, it has become used as the language of the, of the majority oppressing the Jewish minority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, the language of the reformers regarding the Catholic church you know, they were also very much 
the oppressed in that day by, by the Catholic mm-hmm. hierarchy because the Catholic Church was the powers that be in terms right. of the Christian Church, right. and they right. were outside that, and, you know, Luther was excommunicated and, and you know, all of this kind of stuff. So they, they I, you know, I guess, I guess we have to read it as the rhetoric of the oppressed, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I I did not find any in any of the commentary and in this in, in use of this particular passage with that in mind, which I thought was kind of interesting because they didn't hesitate to call that where they saw it. Mm. And they did not use that this in that way. It but I and I say that, but they did use it in defense of salvation by faith alone which was one of their which key, was one of the key tenets um and, and that this was proof of it the and there's Church. nothing you can do and and the, the merit is merit-based salvation does not exist and that was what they used this for and it's like it spoke so well on its own in their opinion that they didn't really need to say it anything else yeah that's interesting yeah mm-hmm. all right well when we come back we'll talk about implications for today All right, we're back. Alan, as I was thinking and, and researching about this parable, I found that it's kind of ignored. It, when I would go look for scripture references, this one doesn't appear. What, what do you make of that? That's kind of strange because I assume you're talking about in the Reformers. I just meant in general. In general I just kind of, really? even, in, even in modern, um, when, I'm, when I'm looking on like some of the library really? sites and things, wow. it's just really huh. not as easy to find information. I'm, wa- interesting. I'm wondering, is it just because it's just in Matthew? Or? That's, that's interesting because as a, you know, as, a, as a lifelong member of the church, I would say this is probably one that preachers tend to gravitate toward <laughs> because it's such an, I guess, a, such a... A, an obvious illustration of grace, you know, apart from works and with no merit, and and it's free, you know. Um, so that's that's interesting. I, I I haven't, and I guess I haven't run across that. So I'll have to check that out myself. I'm wondering, is it is it is it because it's assumed it's just an obvious, it's such an obvious story that has such an obvious yeah, response, which I think we just showed, not necessarily and that maybe we've been trained to read it a certain way, right. but that this has a real social justice um, right. taste to it that we miss. Right, yeah. you do. You do if you don't know that economic background. And um, um, I, I, I hope, I mean, for me, it's, it's kind of obvious because, you know, back in the 90s, I, I was reading scholars who were, who were calling attention to the social and economic background for Jesus' ministry. And so it's hard for me to miss now because right. I, see it, I see it, you know, in the Gospels. And I think it's a part of it. It's part of interpreting Jesus in light of his own historical context. Um, you know, one of the things, I was telling you a story. Um, I, I think that the concept of grace is one that we have a challenge with still today. And I think we have a different challenge than maybe an older generation. Um, I, I shared with you the story of my friend Maxine, who was a member of my church uh, in in Houston area that I pastored some years ago. And um, she was in her 80s when I was her pastor. And she told me toward the end of my time there that I had helped her understand grace more than anybody else. And I, I don't really see that as as my doing, I see that more as she reflect. She was reflecting 
sort of the mindset of her generation, where um, despite all of the, you know, sermons and teaching to the contrary, that you don't have to earn it and you can't earn it, that they still had this sense that they had to do something. They had to live up to a certain standard in order to be able to make it into heaven or something like that. And um, I think that's characteristic of, of that generation. But now, as I'm pastoring, you know, in this day and time, in this space, and I'm relating to people of a different generation, it seems to me that maybe sometimes people take grace for granted. And so they, they, they miss the demand of the gospel that, that, you know, grace has a demand. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you don't want to make grace cheap grace. It is costly grace because it cost God his only son, and right. it costs us our whole life. Right. And, and, and you don't see that level of commitment to, to, um, to living a life of discipleship across the board these days. I, I agree with both of those. And, you know, it's a, really, it's a really interesting thing. And I like to think that the ideas of the church push the ideas of society. But sometimes I think that it's the other way around. So when you've got your folks that lived through World War II and even World War I, and this is a hard work-oriented, they work for everything, and it's just part of their mentality. And to accept that something is free, even grace, is, is, is not part of their background. And then this society now, this kind of very, very um, hyper-individual times when I can achieve anything I want and people give me things um, and that I don't really have to put out. I, I, I mean, just, I, I deserve that. Um, that's, a different, that's a different mindset. So grace should be the same way. Um, and so what an awkward space. But so how do we as pastors explain the free grace of God and yet remind people that this is costly, that, that as, as, a, as a person of grace, that you, you, you will be working hard. You will be often not choosing stuff for yourself but for someone else. And yet how do you couch that in, in understanding that it's not because of what they do, right. <laughs> but because of how God is working in them and, Wow, what a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way I think of it is, <clears throat> you know, there's nothing you can do, and you don't have to earn God's favor or God's, God's love. It's, that's a free gift, and that's, that's grace. I mean, God loves us, always has, always will. Um, but when, when that really takes hold of your life, when that, when that grace really sinks in, then it's going to ask of us all. It's going to demand of us all the very best that we have to offer, and in a sense, all of it, all of what we have to offer. And I'm not sure that concept gets out there. It, it, it doesn't, because I think this, unfortunately, I think our secular world ha- is louder, unfortunately. I mean, I think the secular world speaks louder than the world of the church, because you also have a group of people. I mean, uh, and, and many, many, I mean, our young people now, and many, many churches don't sit through service anymore because it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to them. So what do we do? We pull them out and we say, well, everything we do in church has to pertain to make you happy and it's, and, and it's for you instead of saying, no, when, when you're when, as part of the church family, you're here with us. 
um, in the middle of it, and it's not about you, actually, in this moment. Um, perhaps, perhaps we have adopted a consumer approach ourselves in trying to reach out to people. I, well, I think that might be a part of it, you know. And we're, and and what's sad is I I think then the the spiritual their spiritual needs um, aren't really met because I don't think they ever I don't think they are ever fully in a space where they, they understand or they experience God's grace. And um, what an awesome thing for, for that person who does. I, it reminds me of a story one of my seminary professors used to tell us. And we'd, we'd, we'd be out there and we'd be preaching and no one seems to get it. And yet there's that one little old lady in the back row and she might be knitting and she gets it and you know she gets it um, because she's been there and she's experienced that cost and yet, there she is, drawing as near to God as she can in this space, and her heart is full of joy. Mm-hmm. And I think about her a lot, especially when, when maybe I forget about I think God's we, grace. I think, we all know, <laughs> I think we all know those people. You know, there, there, there are those people in our churches who really get it. Yeah. And um, they are a joy. You know, on, on the other hand, I think the whole social justice part of this parable is something that um, a younger generation is very much in tune with and very much uh, looking for, especially in these times. Um, um, I Personally, my own opinion is I think it's unfortunate that the way in which that gets expressed in our circles is that um, what Jesus was about was not a kingdom but a kingdom, yeah. and, and, and that reflects the social justice orientation of, of a certain generation, which I think is, 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 is good. I, I, I like the social justice orientation, but um, it, it seems to me that um, I, would, I would say it this way myself. Um, I would say the kingdom does generate a kingdom. It does generate a, 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 a set of relationships in which we are all on the same level and that we are to treat one another with the same love and compassion. But it's much broader than that. In, 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 you know, it goes back to the Hebrew Bible concept of the reign of God. God reigns, and, and that is cause for rejoicing in the Psalms, that God reigns. Exactly. Um, yes, yes, yes. And um, um, in Jesus, you know, in Jesus, the, the main message that Jesus had is the kingdom of God is at hand. And, you know, why do you think that, why do you think that we have shifted from the language of kingdom to kingdom in our context? Well, the reason is the Me Too movement. I mean, that's what we have to go back to as why they've changed it, I think. Honestly, they, they are associating kingdom with, with masculinity, and, and I, I think that's where it comes from initially. And I will say, the first time I heard it, I did, it did to make me turn my head, and I thought about it, and then I thought, um, well, there's kind of a beautiful imagery there. Sure. I th- I thought if we're going to make this a, a, a gender issue, we should just say queendom. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, really turn it on its head. But but no. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I agree. Uh, kingdom and historically, kingdom has so much depth of meaning. We're talking about power of God, and when you reduce it to kingdom, I mean, I think kingdom's in it. And when we look at the origins of of the word 
kingdom. It comes from kingdom. You know, that the person that emerged at the leader of it was part of that, that kin group, right? So that's where it starts. But it had in historically become such a bigger concept. And the kingdom of God then is, is different than our kingdom. And I think it's that's the a part imagery of the, there is so yeah. big. Yeah, it's That's so much better. part of the message in the New Testament is, you know, they, you have all these kingdoms around where you have these powerful men, typically, who mm-hmm. are oppressing people mm-hmm. and just, just using their, abusing their power to, for their own mm-hmm. ends. And in, in, in the kingdom of God, Jesus makes it clear exactly. that the standards are reversed. You know, it's, exactly. the, it's the servant of all who is the greatest of all. Exactly. And, and so that's a part of it is that God's kingdom subverts exactly. all the power structures of this world. Exactly. And I think in that in itself, too, that the gender issues with that, are turned upside down as sure. well. I don't think that's a fair even. As I said, we might as well go to queendom. I would say all, all power structures, all mm-hmm. all unjust power structures exactly. of this world are subverted by the reign of God. If we can exactly. Use that word, we can exactly. Use that the exactly. reign of God subverts all the power structures of this world. And that is, to me, that is bigger than a kingdom. Right. But then right. even more so, in the New Testament, there's a cosmic dimension exactly. to the reign of God in that in that all nature is restored and renewed. Yeah, yeah, then exactly. Not just on this planet, but the whole all of creation, the whole universe yeah, is restored yeah. when God's reign comes, you know. And so I think about the Hallelujah Chorus, which is exactly, based on exactly. uh, Revelation eleven fifteen, I believe it is. You know, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever ever. and ever. Exactly. And that's one of the, uh, that goes back also to the Hebrew Bible, is that God's reign is a reign that lasts forever. And it's, def- it's defined by this love. It's defined by mercy. It's defined by justice. It's defined by compassion. It's defined by um, a, a community mm-hmm. of people who share that among themselves equally. Um, and so that's, that's one aspect, I think, of this parable that, that could perhaps really capture the imagination of, of a younger generation. Right. I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, as we talk about this, I don't want to completely discredit, and I don't think we did, the concept of kingdom. No, but it's being no. part of because I think it is a beautiful image. But but let's make sure we make we go further and understand the the, the bigger cosmic. What God um, is doing is bigger than is that. Is bigger than is yeah. even bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, one of the concerns I have is that without that robust theology of God's reign and all that it encompasses, that our efforts at social justice can lose energy. I think we need that robust understanding yep. of the reign of God and what God is doing right. in order to fuel the efforts towards bringing social justice, addressing, I agree. addressing systemic I agree. racism, addressing structural poverty, exactly. these kinds of things. We need, we need a, a solid theological base I in agree. the reign of God to be able to um, continue the work. Exactly. You know, even when... Congress, say, for example, dilly-dallies with a bill right. that, that is meant to address injustices and they can't get together so nothing happens. We have to have the energy to be able to keep advocating. Absolutely. Well, and, and you pointed out the huge piece there. We see individual 
individual things we identify, sexism, racism, poverty. And these are all just little pieces of the bigger fundamental theological failings that, that are going on. And this fundamental, um, what I would say, Christian um, overtone, overtone, theological overtone of, of what it means to be living in the kingdom of God mm-hmm. now, what it means to be a part the of the reign disciples, of part of the reign of God. Yeah. And, and that's a huge responsibility, and that takes us right back to our, our, our discussion of um, um, our, our discussion of what it that that costly grace, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, that if we are truly disciples, then we are working. Um, God, we are working in that grace to be those agents sure. of change. Well, it's the Matthew twenty-five. It's I was the Matthew hungry. twenty-five. Yeah, I was Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, um, well, I think even those small steps on the outside, those, those physical changes is one piece. It's that, that bigger, that, that, that bigger change in, in how people are thinking about the world. Those people willing to step out of their, um, their comfort zone to uh, embrace. Well, I like your framework of, of, of taking, it's not just sexism. It's not just racism. It's not just poverty. It's a whole big picture. Mm -hmm. And in my concept, the reign of God is big enough to exactly. address all of the isms, all of the all of the unjust power structures that we struggle Absolutely. with. Absolutely, that's that's only God can do that. And I, and maybe that's maybe that's what I we were heading to. Some people believe they can do this without God. They and and they think it's something they do. And if we settle into, if we recognize that grace, or I don't even know how to state it. I keep put, putting it in the wrong terminology, but when God's grace takes over and we live into that grace, that's when we're going to see the real I like changes. That. I like that phrase, when we live into that grace, when we live into the grace of God's reign. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the parable is really challenging us to do, to live into the grace of that reign and to recognize that, you know, there are some aspects of this world that don't live up to the standards of God's justice, that don't live up to the, compa- the standards of God's compassion. And, you know, the, so it's kind of a challenge, you know, to, to those structures as well, even though it kind of sneaks it in a little bit, but it's, it's there, I think. I, I agree. I agree. I think, yeah, if we, yeah, I think if we had a, a way to say this is what it says, I think that's as close as we can do. And as, as Calvin would say, maybe to finish with Calvin, as this is all appropriated from God because we can't understand all of God's vastness. So, right. you know, as well as best as we can understand. All right. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> Thank you. That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Thank you.